Once upon a time, when Bill Reel was previously a guest on Infants on Thrones, I used this intro. Let me warn the listener about today's episode. Good idea, Bill. Let me help you out with that. Today we're going to be talking about spiritual trauma. Well, some of us will be talking. We're going to be talking about spiritual abuse. And one or two of us might be yelling about it. I also am assuming that there may be parts of explicit language. Which in and of itself is an especially daring and potentially subversive assumption to be making, given that when you assume anything, you make an ass out of you and me. So... So may I make a few suggestions? One would be obviously keep kids as far away from this episode as possible. Lock them out in the backyard in the tool shed if you have to. Just keep them far, far away. Please. Use duct tape if you have to. The second would be not to listen to this episode alone. Or in the dark. Or around any sharp objects of any kind. And make sure that you've got a 72-hour kit close at hand. And and if I can just beg you as the listener, if if you would please get get somebody you love who loves you for who you are and listen to this episode with them. And if you can't find anyone like that who's willing to listen to this episode with you, there's always Craigslist or those sketchy late-night massage places with the blinking red lights. Just don't be alone. If you have somebody who understands your faith transition, listen to this episode with them. I don't care if this episode only gets seven downloads because you people couldn't find someone else to listen to it with. Uh, only seven? Setting the bar kind of low there, aren't we, Bill? Maybe let's just have them take an Advil or two at the beginning. of the, I, I don't know, seven? 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 But please, by all means, do not listen to this episode by yourself. And keep this episode away from water, and do not feed it after midnight. This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and the conversation you're going to hear today between myself and fellow sorta Mormon podcaster Bill Reel was recorded in mid-July, but I'm just now getting around to publishing it. Now, I only mention that because a few of the things we talk about, especially earlier on, like his fundraiser, may be a little out of date at this point, but... Man, this was a fun discussion. I don't I had a lot of fun with it, especially when we started speculating on the only characteristics of a god, quote unquote, that we would be able to accept these days. Now, I was able to use clips from Richard Dawkins and insert an extended 10-minute clip from Alan Watts and well, I just hope you enjoy this episode. Now, I started off a little bit groggy. You'll hear it because we recorded this early in the morning instead of at night when I usually record. But eventually, the sinful coffee kicked in and we were off to the races. So let's just get to it. Enjoy. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. How are you? 
I'm doing all right. <laughs> I don't know about awesome. Yeah, maybe awesome. Maybe, maybe, maybe awesome. I'm one of those guys who wakes up on the right side of the bed pretty much every day. I'll I'll tell you, I, I forgot about the time difference between us. Um, Is it like 5am where you're at or something? Six. six, Yeah. So I'm just behind you, but um, yeah, I, I got up um, and uh, I'm glad you sent that, uh, that message on Facebook. (laughs) Oh, I gotta do it now. So. Yeah, I've, I've got a little bit of cobwebs in the head, but uh, okay. Well, yeah. well, the good. Then this will be probably a pretty dry conversation. I I'm doubt it. Place. I doubt it. I hope not. Um, yeah. So, so, so tell me um, what what's uh, what, what's new. I mean, la- last time we talked, I mean, we we saw each other briefly at Sunstone last year, but we didn't really talk about anything very much, if I remember. Um, but what was it? Maybe a month or two before that, when we had the conversation where Matt got angry at you for. Not just leaving. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my, my, again, going back to that, I completely understand where Matt was coming from. And there wasn't any, any frustration with him about that place. My only sure. issue was it seemed like he was going back and to it over and over and over again to the point where we were missing out on covering some other things. Sure. That's, that's sure. the only issue I had. And yeah. otherwise, like, I'm, I'm grateful that Matt did that. I've had so much... Um, feedback from people coming and saying like really enjoyed that conversation. Some people say, Hey, I thought he was too hard on you. Other people say, Hey, I thought you deserved it. Yeah. The reality is I think we all have a right to feel emotionally scorned by all that we invested in this thing. Mm. And when it fell apart, I think we have a right to vent some of that at times when we're frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, we, we've tried to, uh, uh, get together a couple times since then and just haven't. So I'm glad, I'm glad we're, we're, we're talking today. You know, I, I saw, um, on Facebook that you, um, started a fundraiser, um, just the other day. And I thought, Oh, that's, I need to reach out to Bill again. And, um, you know, so maybe, maybe we could start there with, um, what it is that you're, you're, uh, raising funds for. Sure. Absolutely. I'm happy to do any of that. You want me to just kind of answer that right now? Are we recording now? Yeah. Sure. So um, (laughs) in terms of the fundraiser, uh, last year we brought in $30,000. And we probably spent, you know, me personally going to like Firesides and going to Sunstone and doing various things, probably spent about five grand, probably had another, uh, probably 10 grand spent up in... Um, different website development stuff. We ended up creating an umbrella site, uh, creating other websites that could be, people could be under that. Um, yeah. How many do you have? Cause you, cause you've got like a big network now, right? It's not just um, your podcast, but you've got other people that are, are podcasting with you. Right. You've got radio free Mormon, who's an anonymous guy who's just been stellar at just dissecting various things in church history as well I- as current events. You know, I've never heard him. You know, I I've, I see, I, and I don't spend much time on Reddit or anything like that. But but every once in a while, there'll be you know like what are the podcasts that you like? And Radio Free Mormon gets, um, yeah, he's got a good reputation there. So. Yeah. In fact, if you want to give just one episode of his a try, go find the one titled "Wrong Roads." Wrong road. Uh, he dissects Elder Holland's talk, where Elder Holland is in the truck with his son. And they go down the wrong road and then he, pers- and because the Holy Ghost tells him to, 
And then he has to reconcile, why did the Holy Ghost tell me to do the wrong thing? Mm. So his answer at the end is that sometimes the Lord send us, sends us down the wrong road so that we can figure out it's the wrong road and then go back and find the right road. And that may sound kind of fluffy when you first hear it, but if you sit and dissect that, it becomes illogical and irrational. And uh, Radio Free Mormon dissects it in a way that just has you laughing through the entire episode. So what's the, what's the gist of... Uh... The fundraiser. I'm not fam- yeah, I'm not familiar with the Holland talk. Oh, oh gotcha. At all. The, with Radio Free Mormon, I mean, again, we've got several hosts, but he's one of them. And, and I think he does an excellent job. Um, Holland is just trying to solve the problem of when the Holy Ghost tells us to do something and it turns out to be the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And the problem is the moment you allow the Holy Ghost to lead you to do the wrong thing, then your trust in the Holy Ghost is decimated. Like anything could be the wrong thing. And, and so once you say like every wrong move I make is also led by the Holy ghost, like it's just completely untrustable. Well, it's, it's also like, um, how do you define wrong? Because if the Holy ghost is, is guiding you to do it and the Holy ghost is his ultimate end is to get you to truth. So it's not really wrong. Is it? Yeah. It's never really wrong to, to follow the Holy ghost, even if he's telling you to do something wrong. (laughs) right he even makes the argument he goes if the holy ghost can lead you down the wrong road only to figure out that that's the wrong road and go back and find the right one why couldn't the holy ghost have just given you a strong enough impression to go down the right road to begin with um the other thought would be and and radio free mormon throws this out himself he goes um what if you're in a marriage for 40 years that's just a horrible marriage like to go back and question everything or if the holy ghost told you the book of mormon is true maybe it told you that because that was the wrong answer only to lead you to some other church later on in your life. Like it begins to cause you to question everything. You, you can't know truth anymore. If every possible answer from the Holy ghost was a deception yeah. to send you down the wrong road. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. I'll, I'll listen to that. So, so I, I'm assuming the reason that he's anonymous is because he's still um, attending. He's still active and he, he's worried no. about being revealed. No, none of those at all. So there was uh, a situation earlier where he had a child on a mission. Um, and so he didn't want to be known at that time just for any of the repercussions might come to his, to his kid. Oh, okay. So, uh, so, but yeah. at this point, all of that's resolved itself. And now it's more for kind of a chuckle in the mystique of being anonymous. People constantly are trying to figure out who he is. Uh, some um, people know. I've had people message me and say, I know who it is. It's, it's so-and-so. But uh, he kind of likes the mystique of, of being this unknown person. And one of his monikers is that he's broadcasting uh, behind enemy lines. And so it's kind of this uh, military radio guy who's behind enemy lines uh, broadcasting out of a bunker. Yeah. Uh, that kind yeah. of a concept. All right. And we've got other hosts as well. Uh, Wendy Perry runs a podcast on kind of a Mormon health. She also dives into some history. We've got a host named Skylar who does. Yeah, I know. I know Wendy. Yeah, yeah, we did it. We did an episode with Wendy. Yeah, she's uh, been on your podcast before. Yeah, and she did um, a listener essay back in February too. Cool, cool. Yeah. We've also got a a mixed faith couple, um, Alan and Katie. They do a, a podcast titled "Marriage on a Tightrope," where he's out, she's in, and they just talk about how to navigate that. And so, lots of couples have benefited from that. They've met a lot of couples outside the podcast, just going out. Uh, folks have driven up to to meet them and go out to dinner with them, and they've been a big help to people. And so, again, kind of by myself, a little bit of Radio Free Mormon kind of halfway through the year last year when he started, and uh, we raised about 30000 But But 
we're trying to get to a point where like all of us are to make these things financially sustainable. Right. And so the goal is to get to 50 grand this year. And that would allow us not only to have a, a, a significant amount that stays with the podcast and kind of builds up in a reserve, but also we would have uh, a chunk of money left over to then pay each of the host. Mm-hmm. Um, so that way they can get, you know, some kind of benefit financial compensation. Cause otherwise, you know how this goes. If, if, you guys started off saying like money's not important, but at some point you burn out. And the only way you can kind of motivate yourself to keep doing these things is if it's financially compensating you to that, to the point where it still stays interesting. Maybe. Yeah. I, I, I think even, I think even with us, we're still, um, the, the, the motivation and the burnout for, for uh, many of the infants, <laughs> or they, I, I don't know how many I, uh, I could talk about them. I probably shouldn't talk about them, but I, I don't think that anybody's really driven by the money uh, still, even though we have it, but it, it was just kind of fortuitous for us because um, well, it started with our hosting, you know, like we, we, we were pretty uh, had a cheap, program or whatever we were doing uh, with hosting and it kept crashing. And so we had to go to something more reliable. Yeah. Same here. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not a ton of money, but you know, like I think it was $80 a month, um, our new program. And then there was something else that, um, we were doing and you know, the the costs add up over time and, you know, we've been doing this for six years. So we switched over to, to the Patreon model, which has been all right. It's been pretty good. Um, but, uh, then a month after we switched from Patreon, I lost my job. And uh, then the money was like, oh, wow. Okay, yeah, I actually do need <laughs> something like this. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't unemployed for very long. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it did get to a point where it's like, oh, well, if there was a way to make this financially viable, um, yeah, let's try it. So yeah, I totally get that. What, what kind of, um, download numbers do you guys get? So we are getting like annually, we're getting a little over a million downloads a year. Um, monthly we're getting somewhere between maybe like 75,000 and 125,000 downloads a month. Yeah. I think that's, let me see what we're, ours has really shrunk, um, a lot in the last year. And I don't know, maybe the Patreon thing had something to do with that. Well, I think ours went down a little bit as well. And it was enough to kind of raise an eyebrow and say like, what's changed. And I'm, I'm wondering if collectively, you know, you know how this goes. I think you and I would even agree to this ourselves that for a while, it's like, all you can do is read and listen and think about Mormonism. And then there comes a point where you just kind of burn out and you want to go do other things. And I think collectively those who left Mormonism kind of have burnt are in that burnout stage. If that makes sense. I know there's new people waking up every day to fracturing inside this machine, but I think the, the large group of folks who um, were the diehard podcast Mormon podcast junkies, uh, those folks have kind of burnt out and, and maybe they're on to other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, th- I think there's a part, a, a big part of that. Um, and, in, in, in our case, we had, um, you know, polarizing episodes when we started talking politics and, um, yeah. you know, Trump and things like that, that, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know, but, but there's definitely like, we, I think at our, in our peak, um, the, the stat I would look at the most would be how many downloads per episode in the first month. 
Um, and our highest was probably around 13,000, um, per, per episode, per episode first yeah. month. And, and now it's probably six on a good episode, you know, right. like a good strong and, and maybe like three or four, um, kind of on just, uh, a, a typical thing. So it's, it's, it's significantly shrunk. Um, but, but, but I think that also correlates with the, interest of the other infants as part of a, a you know the the panel discussions and stuff it's just they're, they're not as interested in in talking about uh, stuff or, or like generating things right um and uh yeah i think that's probably reflective of of the audience too yeah yeah i think it is both factors and and we're seeing a little bit of that at times too where some of us get kind of into a dry spell and we're just not putting out something great for a little bit and, yeah. and all of a sudden like you say things drop off so it's as you point out, it's a matter of us as host being a little burnout at times and mm-hmm. not sounding as energetic. And at other times, I think it's just the, the listeners themselves are maybe have moved on to other interesting subjects besides just wanting to hear Mormonism over and over again. Yeah. Um, and you talk about, you know, being, making a ton of money that just never is going to happen. I mean, unless, unless your name's John DeLinn and I mean, no offense to him, I'm God bless him. And I think he blazed this trail and, and in some ways deserves every penny he gets for kind of opening up this entire uh, arena for all of us. But um, if your name isn't him, I mean, to, to walk away making a, a sustainable income, I, I just don't know if it's realistic in this world. Uh, but I do think I'm hoping the podcast can get to a point where we could pay each of the host, you know, 5,000, maybe even 10,000 a few years from now each. And that would make it at least worthwhile to stay in there and keep producing and putting out a quality uh, product. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what kind of a response have you had? And, and do you do Patreon or what, what, are, how do you no, monetize? I don't, I've got a, I've got a, a app with our podcast website called wishlist and wishlist sets up subscribers, allows them to uh, set up a one-time or a reoccurring subscription through PayPal. Mm. Uh, and then it manages that kind of behind the scenes. We've had some issues with it. So we may end up discontinuing premium episodes here pretty shortly uh, just to, just to end some of the confusion that's happening with it. But we've got a couple of it guys working on it. If we can resolve it, we'll keep it going, but it works in some ways like Patreon. Um, we're, we're moderately happy with it. And so the, the shifting over to Patreon, you and I have talked about this before about switching over, uh, switching over to Patreon, just, just the, the hassle of it because what we have seems to work. Okay. We've just continued using it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so uh, let's get into uh, where you're at a, a year after. Cause I, if I remember right, I think even the first episode of yours that I listened to was uh, what, what was it? It was the one I, I remember I was hiking in Sedona and it really touched me um, as I was listening to it. Oh, my alarm. Um, was it the spiritual trauma one? That's I mean, we it. talked, that's we it, talked spiritual... about that in, in the interview with you. Yeah. And Matt, yeah. Tom. Yeah. So, so, so it was a, a little over a year ago, I think when you did the, the spiritual trauma, um, episode and, and, uh, how, how has the year been for you? What, where are you now? So a lot has happened. Um, Part of when you, and we've talked about this last time we, we had the, the discussion, but when you're in, in your wanting to help the church become healthier from the inside, 
you have to couch your words a certain way. You have to say things in a certain, you have to articulate it in a certain manner. Otherwise you are seen as an enemy and very quickly everyone will distance themselves from you. And I, and I don't consider it being tricky. Like in some ways I deeply believed what I was saying. I just knew that I had to soften the words a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you're expressing a belief or sharing a historical point in class, for instance, you just have to come across a certain way so that people don't dismiss you or, or get so uncomfortable that they turn their brains off. And while we were, while I was going, while my family was going, uh, we did that. But behind the scenes, you continue to keep growing more and more frustrated. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess the easiest way to explain it is when, when that fracture first occurred for me, and again, I, I knew the messiness kind of my time moving through the church, but at the age of 32, it kind of just blew up. And when it blew up, what I, the original arrival that I came to was that the church is true, but it has some problems. And if we, as those who know those problems, raise our hand and share those, those issues and our perspectives, the church will welcome that information and will want to change. That's what a healthy institution, that's what a true and living church would do. And as time went on, it got to the place where I had severe doubts that the church wasn't true, but I, but I deeply believed the church was good. Mm-hmm. And the same held true that if I raised my hand and all of us raised our hands and shared that unhealthiness that was present, the church would happily respond to that. <laughs> the right, the November fifteen, uh, the November uh, two thousand fifteen policy when it came out, it was kind of the first indication to me on a, on a strong level that this machine is is not as good as I thought it was, and perhaps deeply unhealthy, hmm. and that it would not respond to the collective raising of hands and people asking it to be vulnerable to its unhealthiness. And so from 2015 until December of last year, it was working through that both emotionally as well as continuing to kind of dive into Mormonism and look at these issues more and more, but more than just the historical issues, diving more into why we do the things we do in the very present day. And as of December last year, two things happened. One was that I just decided that this thing I'm not making that much of a difference inside mm-hmm. that um, as much as I th- like to think I'm smart enough to help these folks recognize what's wrong here and to begin to change. The reality was that I had maybe moved two or three or four people in the ward uh, to be more empathetic and understanding of these issues Meanwhile, everybody else was becoming more dismissive of me. That was Mm -hmm. the first one. The second thing was that I really was experiencing trauma. We talked about that. I was leaving church with my hand shaking. I was leaving church with headaches. I was leaving church with just like inside feeling all twisted up. And so uh, last December, early on in December, we had bought a house. Um, So we were going to be moving uh, a few weeks later. And it just felt like the right time. I I turned over to my wife in the morning on Sunday and just said, I don't think I want to go today. And that's, that's unique for me. I have been like both feet in go every week. Don't take a day off. 
serve. If you're called to teach, you prepare those lessons. You, you, if you're a home teacher, you go out and see people. Like you I put did on that rainbow tie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, the rainbow tie towards the end. Yes. Um, and obviously being a, a huge LGBT ally, sure. But um, I was both feet in like Mormonism. Mormonism was my everything. And, and I want to say this too. And I, and I said this the last time we all had this discussion. I, even today, I am very grateful for what Mormonism was to the 17 year old me. Yeah. And from 17 to about 29, 28, 27, somewhere in there, Mormonism worked, man, did it work? It worked perfectly. And people ask like what happened And the best way I can describe it is I think those of us who fracture, we outgrew it and it lost its usefulness. There's a, there's an old Buddhist story about a, a guy who has a canoe and he uses the canoe to get across the river. And then once across the river, he starts to drag the canoe you know, across land. And now he's going to head up the mountain to get to where he needs to go to. And he's dragging the canoe with him. And at some point you have to realize the canoe is only useful to get across the water. And once you've moved past that part of your journey, the canoe is no longer helpful or useful. It becomes a burden. And for me, institutional Mormonism attending for the three hour block became a burden to my health. And so I just stepped away realizing that, you know, it's just not the place I'm making a difference. And so that was December and, and your, your whole family, your wife was with you on that. You guys my, haven't been back. Yeah. I was the last one in my family letting go of that. My oh, kids really? disconnected mm-hmm. at least a year earlier. My wife had disconnected probably a year earlier and I was the last one holding on, which probably is contrary to what most people who, who don't really like my, my way of doing things um, probably would have thought I'd be the first one that wanted to get out. Mm. But no, I was the one kind of begging for us to go every Sunday and, and encouraging us to be there. So what kind of a difference have you seen in the last uh, six months or so, seven months? Yeah. yeah. My emotional well-being is so much better. Like we're just, I, I really love the idea of calling it Second Saturday. We sleep yeah. in a little bit. We get right. up. We get the family together. We go do something every Sunday. It could be going to the the lake and getting in uh, some kayaks and kayaking around. It could be just going to the lake. <laughs> Isn't it funny how, how much that used to be demonized? You know, like, oh, yeah. but those people, they go to the lake on Sunday instead of yeah. going to the church. They're not keeping the Sabbath day holy. <laughs> now, now it's the opposite. Now I yeah. drive to the lake and on the way to the lake, I look over at the church building and I see people going in or out. Right. And I'm like, wow, thank goodness. I'm not wasting those three hours still. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and when I was in and when I, when it worked for me, I loved it, but man, now Sundays are just a completely different day. Yeah. It's a chance to reconnect with my kids. It's a chance to just hold my hands, my wife's hand and just hold, uh, hold my kids hands and just kind of just spend the day together. It's, it's, um, there's no more handshaking. There's no more headaches. Um, my emotional health is like a hundredfold better. And so just, just grateful to now have this different space in my journey and to be doing something different. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's really good too, I'm, I'm really lucky uh, twofold in this as well, which is that one, I'm a convert to the church. So I don't have a lot of repercussions with any family. My, my in-laws are members mm-hmm. yeah. and they're a little more quiet. They don't really want to talk because Mormonism was what our relationships in some ways were based on, at least in part. And and that's what formed our conversation. So now there's nothing left to talk about, but my parents, my brother, my, my kids and my wife are out. 
my, my uh, extended family, none of them are LDS. And so there's no repercussion for stepping back for me. The, um, the other thing is that I've got incredible friendships. Sure. Yeah. I'm lucky that there is within um, 20 minutes of my house, there's six to 10 people that I get together with every weekend who are on the same journey I'm on. Mm-hmm. And we just have deep conversations about consciousness and mystery in the universe. And is there a God or isn't there a God? It's, it's become my new tribe. Cool. And very, I mean, man, I wish everybody could have the set of friends that I've got. Uh, and so that those two things together have just made this an incredible ride. I'm, my life's never been happier. That's great. Cool. Yeah. The, uh, the <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous. I want to drive up and, and uh, be part of one you of should. weekends. <laughs> you should come up on a Friday. You can spend the weekend with us, Glenn. We'll, yeah. uh, we'd have uh, a blast. I may do that. I may, I may actually do that. Let's that, do it. That, that, uh, that sounds interesting. Um, so was it around this time? Cause I, I, I'm trying to pinpoint, I was looking back at some of our old emails that there was, there was a post that you did on Facebook where basically you're saying none of the stories that we tell each other in church are true. So what's the point of anything anymore? And I remember we were, and, and Mike Tannehill commented on your post. I'm like, Oh wow, I could get Mike and, and, Bill together, we could have a really great conversation and we came really close to doing it. And I don't know, we just got busy, but, but was that happening around the same time that you're like, I'm done? Yeah. So as I exit, because you've stepped away, you can now be more uh, honest to what it was you were seeing that was unhealthy. You could call it out without the repercussions of the tribe, right? So at that point, it allowed me, and I've been thinking about these things for years, but at that point, it allowed me to say like, this is why I've left because Mormonism has essentially become something that is empty. It's become something that is shallow. And while it still provides maybe community or service to members, it now lacks certain things that it claimed it had that made it the Lord's true and living church. And those things were no longer there or never were there, but now you could acknowledge that it was demonstrable by the things the church was doing that they were not present. Yeah. I, and I, I think the, the really key part of what you just said was that things that they claimed were there, you know, because it, it, for, for me as a, I don't know if I former folklorist, whatever you want to, you know, like I studied these, these stories and, I personally got to the point where I was okay finding meaning and value even in fictions. Um, But the church is so insistent on these fictions being real, true, literal things that I think it really handicaps them. I think it handicaps members that it makes it hard to find value in metaphor because it's so important that it's true, 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 true. And then when you go, well, wait a minute, but these things don't add up. So what's the point? And that was kind of what your post was, right? Yeah. And the stories was actually the first thing that kind of got me putting this list together. Um, When we look at the manuals, let me say this too. Mormonism doesn't give you one healthy story of somebody who leaves for good reason. 
but it gives you lots of stories of people who leave who are less than or broken or sinful. So you look at someone like what, Thomas what about Marsh. that Holland talk though? I'm sorry, uh, but the, it was, was is, is that a possible story where it's healthy that somebody left, but maybe not healthy because ultimately they came back and that was the whole point of leaving. So you're talking about the wrong roads. Yeah. The wrong roads. The yeah. They, they, they left the church only to realize that was the wrong choice. Yeah. Yeah. I could rejoin the church. Uh, Thomas Marsh, Simon's rider. Yeah. William law, William McClellan, even the three witnesses when they leave, yeah. I mean, there's no healthy story. And more than that, the stories, the unhealthy stories we tell about these people, we don't even include all the details or we tell the story even without any historical data to support the story being true. Simon's writer, for instance, we say that he left after his name was spelled wrong. Right. He was in the church for a whole nother year. Mm. Like it's kind of silly to say like, we know for sure the reason he left was because his name was spelled incorrectly. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't hold up. Thomas Marsh's story is historically um, problematic. Yeah. So we tell these stories, even things like the Sweetwater, or Sweetwater Crossing, which is where the three 18-year-old boys go out into the icy river and pull the uh, pioneer saints out of the river and save their lives. And these three boys die soon after and bring them young promises and they'll have the celestial kingdom. It's in our manuals. It's shared in conferences. And once the historical data has been dove into, none of these kids were anywhere near the age of 18. None of them died immediately after. They lived for a long time. There was more than three of them. It was like a like 12 to 15 adults uh, in their 20s and 30s. And these guys all lived to be in their 50s, 60s, 70s. They just didn't die from complications of going into the river. But we tell the story because it's faith-promoting. Right. And it's just not historically true. And so once you realize that this church builds its reputation on whitewashed, simplified, historically inaccurate stories, and then leaves out any of the problematic truths of these stories or of others, man, you start to realize pretty quickly that this thing is manipulating members into having spiritual experiences, manipulating members into thinking all these things are beautiful and add up when in reality there's the way I put it, somebody who's spending time in the three hour block and that's the, that's where their time and energy is spent learning about their church they don't know a thousandth of what has really happened in this story. Yeah. I mean, one was priesthood power, right? That there's no, there's no healings anymore. Oh, going back to that original post that you did. Yeah. 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 The, 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 the stories about healings are just stories. You don't ever actually see healings. That in every general conference. In fact, this last general conference, there were 11 talks given that were surrounding individuals who were sick. And of course, in Mormonism, some of those, it was said that that person received a blessing. In other stories, you're left to assume so, but of course they got a blessing. In all 11 stories, all 11 people died. We don't have healing stories. I mean, look back at any of these conferences. Nobody's telling you that people got healed. What people are telling you is that people die, and Elder Bednar says you have to have faith not to be healed. They're essentially telling you guys where there's just no magic here. And so the bigger amount of faith is to believe that, you know, there's faith not to be healed, to believe that not being healed is a bigger blessing than being healed. Uh, Jesus himself puts his hand on someone's ear and heals it. And I remember calling out to members saying like, I'd love to hear a story and I'm being somewhat snarky, but I'd love to hear a story of someone who had their arm restored or their eyeball restored or their ear restored or a finger restored even. And the reality is that 
that doesn't happen. And we kind of, uh, maybe below the surface of our conscious, understand that. We understand as Mormons even, it's probably too much to ask for my arm to be restored. Um, but the reality is that unless something is uh, possible within the science of medicine, anything outside of that, we don't hear those kinds of healings today because they don't happen. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I, I have been out of it for so long that, that any, any memory that I have of healing stories is just so like, I don't know. I don't know if people are still telling, I, I suspect that they probably are um, still telling these memorat type stories um which a, a, a memorat is a specific term that means uh an experience with the supernatural um there so a, a healing story would be an example of like a, a memorat or a kind of a personal legend or something like that whether it happened to you or it happened to somebody close to you and it's usually well i these people that i know they did this and 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 they're these more apocryphal stories that you don't necessarily hear over the pulpit but you you exchange with other Mormons in situ, you know, like the, the group that you meet with every week, if, if you were all believing Mormons, there would be right. times where you would tell these stories about, Oh, well, no, on my mission, I knew this guy who did this thing and this girl was healed and it was amazing. You know, like those, those right. kinds of stories, I think I would suspect are probably still as healthy as they've ever been, maybe even more as a way to try and, uh, deal with the cognitive dissonance right, <laughs> right. my oh, aunt's uncle's cousin's friend met yeah one of right the the, the faux friend of a friend kind of uh stories there I, I would suspect that in the general culture they're still pretty strong but i just don't have any evidence for it because i'm not associating i'm not in those groups anymore to be able to spy like i used to <laughs> yeah i i wonder if It'd be fun to do a study, right? To send a bunch of atheists down one wing of the children's cancer uh, hospital, you know, hospital to cancer unit and send, send atheists down one and they'll just cross their fingers and say kind things and then send the Mormon elders down another wing of the, of the hospital and send the, send the Catholic priest down the other wing and have everybody give blessings or wish good luck and then do a study afterward and say like, how many of these folks walked out of the hospital healed? And my guess is you've got about a one in three chance of having a statistically insignificant uh, advantage over the other two. Uh, but the reality is that it would essentially be the same data coming out of all three wings of the okay. hospital. There's, there's no God magic. And, and we recognize it like the days of, you know, the earth flooding and seas being parted and fire coming down from heaven at a prophet's uh, call. Uh, we now live in an age of verifiable history. And the moment God's magic became observable and recordable, God stopped doing his magic tricks. Hmm. Yeah. So what, what, what is, uh, what, what is your belief in God now? Has that changed or is it still as it um, has been for a while? It's been for a long time. The, the space I've held and I still hold this. I, I find the universe to have mystery in it and I'm okay saying that I have severe doubts about God uh, if you wanted to hook me up to a lie detector test and say, is there a God or isn't there? I'd probably answer there isn't. Um, but I'm open to the possibility that there's something out there that's bigger than us and we can call it God, but I don't think it interacts with the universe or with us in the ways that we have 
defined or laid out throughout all of these religions and sacred texts that belong to them. He, he essentially would be, uh, he, he would essentially stand back and not be involved. I mean, it doesn't make any sense when you say this God is deeply involved in our day-to-day lives. There's just too much to counter that, right? Like he helps the, the girl in Kaysville find her keys to her Jetta. And yet you've got these children who are sold into the sex trade business every day, whose lives are just full of trauma and anguish. And for that God to be hearing that prayer, but to be sitting by and allowing those other people to just experience that negative journey, it just makes God into into an a-hole. So um, it doesn't make any sense. And so you have to allow him to completely stand back and not participate. And the moment you do that, then, that has its own problems too, because the more rational explanation then is there's just no God. Or, you know, I mean, the, I, I remember even when I was attending um, and, and I gave a, a gospel doctrine lesson once. And one of the things that I started doing as a gospel doctrine teacher is I would find like anti-Mormon or atheistic uh, arguments against God or against the church or things like that. I would find things like that online in kind of the early days of discussion forums uh, that I wasn't totally active in, but, but I would, I would go and I would find something and then I would use that maybe as a straw man to initiate a conversation in gospel doctrine. And so one, one of the lessons that I gave, um, was a response to this idea that, God lets all these horrible things happen. So he must be an a-hole or he doesn't exist, you know? And I, I went to whatever scripture that was in, I think it's Moses. Um, this is my work in my glory. Right. And you can finish that, right? This is my work in my glory to pass the immortality, eternal life of man. Yeah. But I changed it. Um, and I said, this is my work in my glory to protect everyone, make sure that nobody ever gets hurt even a little bit and nobody ever, ever dies, you know, or something like that. Right. Um, just, just as a way of, of highlighting um, the assumption that's made if you're going to think about God in that way. Like, why is it that you think that God is always going to just protect everybody and not let bad things happen to anybody and that that would be the utopian world, a utopian world where there's only, only good. And there's never, ever any bad. Like what, what's that about? Well, that's not, that doesn't come from scripture. Does it that, you know, that there's nothing in Mormon doctrine that this was my argument at the time, not now, Sure, but, sure. but you know, there's, there's nothing uh, that says that that's what God's purpose is. What God's purpose is, is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So how does he do that? And we, uh, I remember a, a book that I read when I was a teenager that was really influential on me was Neil A. Maxwell, All These Things Shall Give the Experience, I think yeah. was the title of the book. And, and he, he was basically, I didn't really understand it at the time, but he was basically trying to give a Mormon response to the problem of evil and say, you know, there's, there's three primary reasons why there's evil or sin um, or hardship or suffering in the world. Uh, the, the first one is it could be just a result of your actions. If, if you do things that are wrong, if you sin, then, of course, there's going to be a negative um, 
consequence for that. Then the, the second possibility is um, if um, we, we, we just live in a world where there's, there's opposition to things and sometimes things just happen and it doesn't have anything to do with uh, your actions or not. It's not a consequence of your sin. It just things happen. It's the shit happens, but he didn't say right. shit happens. Right. <laughs> and then the third one is... Uh, It'd be funny, though, if Maxwell said that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jay Golden Maxwell might have, but... Uh, right. <laughs> um, but, but uh, and then the third one was um, God uh, could be testing you just to see your response. And that's the Abraham, uh, you know, model or uh, Abraham right. Isaac story and things like that. And so that, that made a huge impact on me as a teenager and because of that, it was almost like an inoculation of sorts. Whenever this uh, argument would come up about God allowing all the suffering in the world to happen, I would be like, yeah, but wh- where is that coming from? Why is it that that's part of a, a worldview or an expectation of who God is or how God would behave? Where is that coming from? Um, because I don't, I don't really see it in the scripture. So I, I don't know. I, maybe I'd throw that at where do you think that's coming from? So I would in some ways disagree with you. I think it does come from the scriptures. I mean, we have throughout the Book of Mormon, we constantly have um, decisions being made by characters after God speaks to them directly and tells them what to do and how to influence the world. And so once we allow ourselves to live in a world where the church also reiterates that God talks to his prophets, God talks to his children, and that we ought to follow the Holy Ghost as it influences us every day. There's, and we have such insignificant things, right? Like Joseph Smith is being told by God to make sure his, his children don't drink coffee and tea, right? So, but on the other hand, he doesn't tell his children to boil water uh, to keep people from drinking stuff and getting infected and, and end up uh, losing an arm or a leg, which can't be restored, by the way. Uh, I think often throughout scriptures, we talk about God's there and he's present and he is helping. And we constantly reinforce those with stories. We, we get up and fast in testimony meeting and the church doesn't tell us not to do it because any story that reaffirms faith and builds it, even sure. if it's not true, we're okay with that. And so I think our culture, our sacred text, our leaders are all um, speaking to the point that God is a living active participant in our daily lives. Um, so I, I see what you're saying. Cause I think there's the other story as well. Um, but even in the Abraham story, God eventually steps in, right? He doesn't let Abraham kill his kid. Yeah. But he doesn't prevent suffering. You know, he, he allows Abraham to suffer with this dread of having to take his son into the wilderness and tie him up to an altar and even raise the knife you know, right. it brings him right up to that moment. And all of that angst and trauma that God allows Abraham to have, he never steps and in. And more importantly, Isaac, right? I mean, Abraham is sure. schizophrenic and whatever he's dealing with, so be it. But here's this kid who thinks his dad's yeah. going to kill him. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so, you can uh, look yeah. at either one of them. But, but I, and again, I'm, I'm trying, I'm stretching to try to remember the point that I made in that gospel doctrine class. I think that what it was is that I said th- these ideas about God preventing harm um, and and minimizing suffering is really it, it's not like a top down um, 
this is what God is telling us himself through scriptures and prophets, but it's more like a, a bottom up grassroots, a very human uh, angst um, concern and worry that is just kind of baked into being human. And that's infused itself in our culture. And so when, you know, there's, there's language in the scriptures about the foolish traditions of men, you know, and I'm like, maybe this is one of the foolish traditions of men that we just have seeping up in our culture that, um, interferes or, or it, it changes our expectation and gives us this unrealistic expectation of what God is or how God operates in our life. When you look around and you see other things, you can go, oh, well, that's not actually how things are. Yeah. It, it, here's the pushback I would give, Yeah, which is that Mormonism imposes that it is God who authorized us switching the garment fabric and allowing uh, uh, silk to be one of the fabrics, right? Like it's an authorized change by Heavenly Father. So on some level, Mormonism says like God is so involved even in the little things. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, we would say like for some reason, God doesn't step in over the course of 150 years and tell his prophets generation after generation that they're really trauma-causing, unhealthy theories that they've been imposing as doctrine around race are not true. So there's this idea that God is deeply involved in these little things. He somehow seems to stay completely away from some of these big things that just seem so crucial to the healthiness of humankind. And, and so then I step in and I say, what, what is, like, like, we can make loopholes. We can create mental gymnastics, gymnastics and say, like, who are we to define God? Who are we to say what he wants to do or what's important or what isn't? When the reality is what's more rational, what's more logical, the more rational position is that God doesn't talk to these men. And, and so we can create loopholes if we want to and make space for them to still have some interaction, even though it's not what we expect. But my brain tells me that's irrational. And so the moment I have to make an exception, or as Terrell Givens say, make an allowance, the moment I have to do that, I'm already being an irrational thinker. And that's the part of my life I've stepped away from. I, I no longer say like, okay, give me two options. Let's talk about the data on both sides. And let's come to the decision on what's the most rational explanation. I mean, it'd be like saying like, listen, Glenn, the earth is flat. Um, and, and we're just going to make allowances, which people do to hold that perspective. But if we're in that debate, you and I know it's ridiculous. We know a flat earth is ridiculous because a round earth makes more sense. It has more evidence for it. It's the more rational position. And anybody who wants to argue in favor of a flat earth, we understand that they're irrationally thinking. In Mormonism, because we've had some warm feeling in our body, which by the way, can be completely exp explained with elevation emotion, which is a psychological uh, phenomenon, Right. Um, which matches very closely with the Holy Ghost, because we have a spiritual experience, we defend the implausible or highly less plausible answer as, as still having room to be the right answer. But we don't do that in our daily lives. It doesn't make any sense. So I'm to a place in my life where I'm going to go with being rational and logical. And if I come to find out that the most rational explanation uh, isn't true, I'll deal with that. So far, that hasn't backfired on me. Or two, what often happens is new evidence comes into the picture, which makes a less rational answer now more rational, and I change my mind. 
That's not how religion works. Religion asks you to accept the less rational answer without the evidence having come forward yet. And that's just illogical thinking. And I think once you see it, you don't unsee it again. You understand like, oh my goodness, I always made room for the catalyst theory in the book of Abraham because it was the only way I could make all this work. But if I step back and look at the big picture, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, there's a missing scroll? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense once I know the parts Joseph translated, where those figures were, how close they were to the facsimiles, and how awful the facsimiles are translated. It's not the most reasonable explanation. Yeah, with with, with the Abraham stuff, I never never really had to go much further than the facsimiles. Yeah. Uh, Once you look at those, you see it's a disaster. Yeah. And and just like some of the, some of the explanations and especially the ones ought not to be revealed to the world at this time. And uh, yeah, that that was just funny to me. And it's funny too, just to stay on that issue for one second. Yeah. Carrie Molstein, who's an LDS Egyptologist Mm -hmm. and Carrie Molstein says, look, I start with the conclusion that the church is everything it claims to be. And then I work my hypothesis from there. Yeah. Well, the moment someone tells me that, I've discounted you, especially when I look at every other Egyptologist outside Mormonism who says that Kerry Molstein is, is way out there and none of the things he says match up with the things that we're discovering. Sure. So you just have to come to a point where you say, like, look, I really want to know. I really want to know. Does this add up or doesn't it? And the moment you do that, you allow yourself to, to choose the most rational option. And yeah. it's never the church's side of the narrative. Never. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, so so – that we, we just kind of went down a rabbit hole that um, I think I, it'll I, give I, the listeners a chuckle though. <laughs> no, sure. No, I, 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 I want to get back to this idea of God because it's, sure. it's interesting to me. Um, and uh, the, the, the whole reason I went down this thing about um, harm and safety is because I, I, I'd like to try to put together a list of attributes that would be acceptable, you know, like these hypothetical attributes, like if there was a God, what would you expect that God to be? And is, is it reasonable or logical to expect that a God would be micromanaging somebody's life so much and protecting them from some things, but not from others and that sort of thing, you know, because what it sounded like to me was that, you know, when I asked you about, um, your belief in God, one of the stumbling blocks was that, well, there's so much suffering in the world. It's really hard to believe, you know, he's either not there at all, or he's just a big jerk, you know? Um, and so th- there's that question then is, is it possible to have a different set of attributes that, um, would say, okay, he's this distant God, w- whether they're suffering in the world is irrelevant to who or what God is. Um, like what, what are some of the other characteristics or attributes that, that you might be able to, uh, accept and still think that there's something called God, or at what point do you get so far away from previous conceptions of God that these new lists of attributes are describing something else that doesn't have a name or doesn't make any sense to call it God, you know, (laughs) right. The, the best I can arrive at, and I'll have to go back to what we were talking about before to set it up. So if, if God tells people not to drink coffee and tea, but doesn't step in and stop a 10 year old from being kidnapped, raped and killed. Like I just, man, I, that's just not a, that's just not a being I really want to have a friendship with. That's just not a guy or gal that I want to get to know. So what I'm left with, if I let my brain say like, what's, what's realistic 
And, and what I come to is that I, I believe the, the scientific processes by which this world came into place and we came to be, which is evolution. Right. And so if evolution holds true, yeah. then eventually uh, the human race, if things go the right way, could become a much more advanced being. Correct? Like that's not out of the question. If we, if a amoeba can turn into a human being, then what can a human being turn into in 10 billion years? Right. Limitless. Yeah. And so if we allow that potential of whatever that is 10 billion years from now to be what we would look to now and say, that's God, or that's a God for that God to say like, wow, for, for other amoebas over 20 billion years to arrive at where I'm at, I'm going to set that process in motion on other planets. But at that point, that's it. That's the end of it. He sets that process in motion. She sets that process in motion. And then they're completely out of the way. And they yeah. just let that process take place uh, so that other planets would eventually have beings that are much more advanced than we are. And, and that's it. That's, that's as far as I can go with what attributes I can allow God to have. And I don't even know if I laid out an attribute, but that's, that's it. That's the scope. No, I, 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 I love it because that, I mean, I've, that, that, that's kind of where I'm, I'm at with it too. Um, and I've, I've used this uh, quote on infants multiple times, but um, th- there was a documentary many years ago that Ben Stein did about intelligent design and he interviewed Richard Dawkins. Hello, Professor Dawkins. How are you? I'm Ben Stein. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. How are you? Fine, thank you. You have... Uh, You have written that uh, God is a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. No, I didn't say quite that. I said something rather better than that. Please tell us what Um, you said. Well, I would have to read it from, from, from the book. No, please. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So that's what you think of God? Yeah. How about, how about if people believe in a God of infinite lovingness and kindness and forgiveness and generosity, sort of like the modern-day God? Why spoil it for them? Oh, um... Why not just let them have their fun and enjoy it? I mean, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. I I write a book. People can read it if if they want to. Um, I believe that it is a liberating thing to free yourself from primitive superstition. So religion is a primitive superstition? Oh, I I think it is, yes. So uh, you believe it's liberating to uh, tell people that there is no God? I think a lot of people, when they give up God, feel a great sense of release uh, and freedom. Why do you think that? I mean, what's your well, dad? What's your scientist? What's your dad? I think. Well, I've had a lot of of letters saying that, and I've, there are eight billion people in the world. Yeah, Dr. Yeah, Dawkins. How many letters yeah, have you had? No, I haven't. I haven't done that. that that's quite quite true. Professor Dawkins seemed so convinced that God doesn't exist that I wondered if he would be willing to put a number on it. Well, it's hard to put a figure on it, but but I I, I mean I put it as something like you know. 99% against or something. Well, how do you know it's 99% I against, say, in 97? No, I did, you asked me to put a figure on it, and I, it, I'm not comfortable putting a figure on it. I think it's, I, I just think it's very unlikely. What? But you couldn't put a number on it? No, of course not. So it, it could would be, be 49%. Well, I, it would be, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's unlikely, but, but I, and it's quite far from 50%. How do you know? 
something? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I put an argument in the book. Well, then who did create the heavens and the earth? Why do you use the word who? You see, you, you, you immediately beg the question by using the word who. Well, then how did it get created? Well, um, by a very slow process. Well, how did it start? Nobody knows how, how it started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that, that must have happened for the origin of life. And what was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Right. How did that happen? I told you we don't know. So you have no idea how it started? No, no. no, no nor has anybody. Nor has anyone else. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design just certain types of designers, such as God. So the, the Hebrew God, the God of the Old Testament, he doesn't exist in your view? Um, certainly, I mean, that would be a very unpleasant pro prospect. And uh, the trend, Holy Trinity of the no, New Testament? Nothing, nothing like that. Do you believe in any of the uh, Hindu gods? Like Vishnu? How can you ask such a question? You don't, how, right? how could I? I mean, why, why would I, given that I don't believe in any others? You don't believe in the Muslim God? No. And why do you even need to ask? Well, I just wanted to be sure. So you don't believe in any god anywhere? Any god anywhere would be completely incompatible with 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 anything that I've said. In, in, I, I assume. Yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure you don't okay. believe in any god anywhere. No. What if you, if after you died, you ran into God? He said, what have you been doing, Richard? I mean, what have you been doing? I've been trying well, to be nice to you. Yep. I gave you a multi-million dollar paycheck yep. over and over again with your book, and look what you did. Bertrand Russell was, had that point put to him, and he said um, something like, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? And he was trying to pin down Richard Dawkins on intelligent design. And, and so Richard Dawkins speculated this too. You know, he's like, well, okay, let's, let's start with things that we know and can accept. And the process of evolution um, is that. So if there was an advanced being somewhere in the universe, he would have had to have evolved to that point. Um, and then maybe you could find some signature in our DNA of uh, an intelligent designer that would be somebody that had, you know, evolved to this point somewhere else. But um, 
we, we, we don't know that we don't have that. So what's the point of, you know, I mean, that, that was kind of his conclusion, but, but I loved that idea. I'm like, Oh yeah. Cool. And, and it's kind of consistent with the King Follett explanation of, of God that Joseph Smith gives of these intelligences. And one of them was more intelligent than others. And, um, and it seems rational, right, to say yeah. that if the if human beings evolved to something greater somewhere else out in the universe, wouldn't we wouldn't we understanding that entire process want to start that process on other habitable planets to continue to see kind of how that works itself out, to see if evolution works it out in, in a much different way, which it would, or would it work out in similar ways? And I I think us having scientific minds that we as human beings do, whatever advanced evolved humanoid is on some other planet far off in the universe, I could see why a scientific mind would say, let's go find other inhabitable habitable planets and let's start the process there and see what happens. Yeah. And, and I, like the, the, the only thing that I find limiting in what you just said was the word humanoid. Right. It would be something completely different, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, I would think so, you know, so, it, and it's been something that I found really interesting um, is why people that are very committed to a scientific worldview um, aren't more, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the right word. What, what, why they, why they're so insistent on the impossibility of certain things. Like, right. like so what, what science kind of tells me is that in this, I, I don't know if the universe is infinite or not, if it's still expanding, it doesn't really have an edge, does it? You know, so, right. and there's so We're many, further away from Kolob today though. <laughs> sure. Well, definitely having left, but, um, but, but, you know, with so many galaxies, so many solar systems, so many, possibilities that there are other earths like ours in Goldilocks zones within their own solar system. And that why wouldn't life have evolved? If you just look at this planet, look at all of the different varieties of life that yeah. has evolved and the different yeah. states of intelligence that we still don't really even know all that much about, you know, like, a, like what a, a bee coming to a flower um, is attracted by a, uh, electromagnetic vibrations that the flower is able to communicate to the bee, whether it has pollen or not. And the bees developed some kind of a, a sense on how to read that, that humans don't have. We, we didn't need to develop or evolve that sense. Well, things like koala that. bears, koala bears eat eucalyptus. Eucalyptus is a poisonous plant and yeah. it's the only animal who, who evolves to the point where it can utilize this plant. Nothing else wants to touch. Yeah. Yeah. And so like life Whatever life is, you know, when that, that started with the single cell organism on this planet, it's stubborn. <laughs> it's, right. it's, it's incredibly uh, prolific and, and always evolving in these random variety of mutations that whatever works sticks and builds upon for the next thing and multiple, multiple variations. And we're one of them, you know, as, as humans. But we're not the, not the only ones, and uh, but but we're kind of alone on this planet at the level of intelligence and, and consciousness that we've evolved to. But why why would we not think that that's happened in other places? And maybe the Goldilocks zone for a different non carbon based form of life is different than the Goldilocks zone that that ours is on this planet. It, it I, I think the possibilities 
are really interesting. And I, I, one of the things I've, I've watched over and over in the last year or so is this series called the fabric of the cosmos, I think is what it's called. It's, it's Brian green, a theoretical physicist who did this with Nova and it's a four part series. Um, and, and one of them, he's talking about time. But what is the story of time? People say that time flies, that time is money. We waste time, we kill time, we try to save time. But what do we really know about time? Well, like this river, time seems to flow endlessly from one moment to the next. And the flow of time seems to always be in one direction, toward the future. But that may not be right. Discoveries over the last century have shown that much of what we think about time may be nothing more than an illusion. Contrary to everyday experience, time may not flow at all. Our past may not be gone. Our future may already exist. It turns out time itself can speed up or slow down. And events that we think can unfold in only one direction can also unfold in reverse. But how could this be? How could we be so wrong about something so familiar? And if time isn't what we all think it is, then what is it? Did it have a beginning? Will it have an end? Where did it come from? And he's talking about some of Einstein's theories on time that have been around for over a hundred years, but just blew me away. Like I, I didn't, I, I didn't understand. Like I knew Einstein E equals MC squared, but never really understood it. I didn't know how far out some of these things that are accepted as truths in science, how far out they really are that like time is relative to um, your position in space. And, and that according to Einstein's theories, future events and past events really don't have anything different from each other. You know, like everything could potentially have already happened and we're just traveling in this moment of time going forward. And Brian Greene talks about this from this perspective of theoretical physicists in such a fascinating way. And he, he poses the question, could, could we travel forward in time? Could we travel backwards in time? And he's saying, okay, well, let me break it down. This actually could happen according to the rules of physics. And here's what would need to, to happen. And with the traveling back in time, the conclusion that he comes to, you know, or one of them, he says, but if that was possible, why haven't we been visited from people in the future? You know, that's, that's something that you commonly hear. And as I was listening to that and thinking about this um, idea of evolution, I thought, well, okay, so if, if you go back in time and you, you look 250 million years ago at what hu the human species looked like um, at, at these early stages of evolution, would we even recognize ourselves? Would we know what we are right. if, if we saw that? So w w what makes us think that going that far into the future, <laughs> whatever we might evolve to, assuming that we survive as a species, um, what would that look like? And how would we even know to recognize it? 
And how do we know that we're not being visited by those things? But maybe it's in a, such a form that's so strange to us, so incomprehensible to us that we can't even perceive it with our limited five bands of senses or whatever, you know? And I'm like, wait, how do we know? And so for, for that, it just obliterates certainty um, on anything. But I, I, I'm, I, I like that. I, I, I just have a lot of fun um, speculating on things like that. And along the... To me, I, I'm sorry, just, let me sure, say more. Sure. It, just, it just seems like it's more probable than less probable that life has evolved uh, in different places in the universe to such a far advanced place from where we are that it's, it's I, I just find that more probable than less probable. Right. For, for your listeners to have their mind blown, maybe you've heard this as well, but this is one of those fun rabbit holes to go down as well. One of these well-known atheist thinkers, I can't remember if it's Hawkins or Dawkins or who, who it was, but there was the idea that the moment we um, have technology advanced to the point where our consciousness could be placed onto computer hardware or software, sure. a simulation could be run. Yeah. The moment that's possible, it is exponentially greater that we're actually in a simulation at this very moment than we're actually living out our lives. Like the yeah. moment it becomes possible, if that's the case, you only have one life to live. You could be simulated exponentially, right? So the idea that the moment it becomes possible, the reality is you are exponentially more likely in a simulation at this moment than within your real life. Do, do, do you ever watch Black Mirror? No, I, I don't. Oh, watch Black Mirror. Is it a movie or TV series? It's a, it's it's a TV series. You can you can get it on Netflix. It's kind of like um, a modern day Twilight Zone, um, dystopian future kind of things. There okay. are some phenomenal <laughs> episodes that, that deal with this kind of stuff. Um, right. You know, like the, the 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 synthesis of humanity and technology and and what that does for us and i'll do it i'll check it out oh my gosh there's so many good episodes on black mirror see if i can talk my wife into starting the series tonight yeah yeah, we finished handmaiden's tale uh the end of season two or three whatever we're in yeah and so now we've got to find something else to occupy our time did 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 you have you tried westworld Uh, i've heard of it but no i haven't oh my gosh Uh, yeah yeah westworld's phenomenal for this kind of these kinds of questions of like, Ooh. what is, what, what, what is consciousness? What, what role does memory play? What, what is the difference? Um, what does it mean to be alive? Um, what, what's the difference between these androids in this, this park that people go to and people themselves, you know, so, so Westworld just finished season two and mm. that, that's really fascinating. But then the, the, the other thing that I uh, recently w- within the last maybe five or six months, um, I, I discovered this guy named Alan Watts, who, um, do, do you know who Alan Watts is? Have you heard of him? Again, that sounds super familiar. And I think I've heard things from him, but I mm. can't put like a, a certain topic yeah. to. You, your, your weekend group might enjoy exploring some Alan Watts. I find it a little difficult to say what the subject matter of this seminar is going to be, because it's too fundamental to give it a title. I'm going to talk about what there is. Now, the first thing, though, that we have to do is to get our perspectives with some background about the basic ideas which, as Westerners living today in the United States, influence our everyday common sense 
our fundamental notions about what life is about. And there are historical origins for this which influence us more strongly than most people realize. Ideas of the world which are built into the very nature of the language we use and of our ideas of logic and of what makes sense altogether. And these basic ideas I call myth, not using the word myth to mean simply something untrue, but to use the word myth in a more powerful sense. A myth is an image in terms of which we try to make sense of the world. And we at present are living under the influence of two very powerful images which are in the present state of scientific knowledge inadequate. And one of our major problems today is to find an adequate satisfying image of the world. Well, that's what I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to go further than that. Not only what image of the world to have, but how we can get our sensations and our feelings in accordance with the most sensible image of the world that we can manage to conceive. All right, now, the two images which we have been working under for 2,000 years and maybe more are what I would call two models of the universe, and the first is called the ceramic model, and the second, the fully automatic model. The ceramic model of the universe is based on the book of Genesis, from which Judaism, Islam, and Christianity derive their basic picture of the world. And the image of the world in the book of Genesis is that the world is an artifact. It is made. As a potter takes clay and forms pots out of it, or as a carpenter takes wood and makes tables and chairs out of it. Don't forget, Jesus is the son of a carpenter, and also the son of God. So the image of God and of the world is based on the idea of God as a technician, potter, carpenter, architect, who has in mind a plan and who fashions the universe in accordance with that plan. So basic to this image of the world is the notion, you see, that the world consists of stuff, basically. Primordial matter, substance, stuff, as pots are made of clay. And the potter imposes his will on it and makes it become whatever he wants. And so in the book of Genesis, the Lord God creates Adam out of the dust of the earth. In other words, he makes a clay figurine and then he breathes into it and it becomes alive because the clay becomes informed. By itself it is formless, it has no intelligence and therefore it requires an external intelligence and an external energy to bring it to life and to put some sense into it. And so in this way, 
we inherit a conception of ourselves as being artifacts, as being made. And it is perfectly natural in our culture for a child to ask its mother, how was I made? Or who made me? And this is a very, very powerful idea. But for example, it is not shared by the Chinese or by the Hindus. A Chinese child would not ask its mother, how was I made? A Chinese child might ask its mother, how did I grow? Which is an entirely different procedure from making. You see, when you make something, you put it together, you arrange parts, or you work from the outside to the in as a, as a sculptor works on a stone or as the potter works on clay. But when you watch something growing, it works in exactly the opposite direction. It works from the inside to the outside. It expands, it burgeons, it blossoms, and it happens all over itself at once. In other words, it, the, the, the original simple form, say, of a, of a living cell in the womb, progressively complicates itself. And that's the growing process, and it's quite different from the making process. And so there is, for that reason, a fundamental difference between the maid and the maker. And this image, this ceramic model of the universe, originated in cultures where the form of government was monarchical. And where, therefore, the maker of the universe was conceived also at the same time in the image of the king of the universe. King of kings, lord of lords, the only ruler of princes who dost from thy throne behold all dwellers upon earth. I'm quoting the Book of Common Prayer. And so all those people who are oriented to the universe in that way feel related to basic reality as a subject to a king. And so they are on very, very humble terms in relation to whatever it is that works all this thing. I find it odd in the United States that people who are citizens of a republic have a monarchical theory of the universe. Because we are carrying over from the very ancient Near Eastern cultures the notion that the Lord of the universe must be respected in a certain way. People kneel, people bow, people prostrate themselves. Because, the, and you know what the reason for all that is, that nobody is more frightened of everybody else than a tyrant. He sits with his back to the wall and his guards on either side of him. And he has you face downwards on the ground because you can't use weapons that way. When you come into his presence, you don't stand up and face him because you might attack. And he has reason to fear that you might because he's ruling you all. And the man who rules you all is the biggest crook in the bunch. Because he's the one who succeeded in crime. The other people are pushed aside because they, the criminals, the people we lock up in jail, are simply the people who, who didn't make it. Ha, ha, ha.
So naturally, uh, the real boss sits with his back to the wall and his henchmen on either side of him. And so when you design a church, what does it look like? Catholic church with the altar as it used to be. It's changing now because the Catholic religion is changing. But the Catholic church has the altar with its back to the wall at the east end of the church. <laughs> and uh, there the altar is the throne and the priest is the chief vizier of the court and he is making obeisance to the throne in front but there is the throne of God, the altar. And uh, all the people are facing it and kneeling down. <coughs> and a great Catholic cathedral is called a basilica from the Greek basileus, which means king. So a basilica is the house of a king. And the ritual of the Catholic Church is based on the court rituals of Byzantium. A Protestant church is a little different, but basically the same. The furniture of a Protestant church is based on a judicial courthouse. The pulpit. The judge in an American court wears a black robe. He wears exactly the same dress as a Protestant minister. And everybody sits in these boxes. Like there's a jury box, there's a box for the judge, there's a box for this, a box for that. And those are the pews in an ordinary kind of colonial type Protestant church. So both these uh, kinds of churches, which have an autocratic view of the nature of the universe, decorate themselves, are architecturally constructed in accordance with political images of the universe. One is the king and the other is the judge, your honor. There's sense in this. Uh, when in court you have to refer to the judge as your honor, it stops the people engaged in litigation from losing their tempers and getting rude. There's, there's a certain sense to that. But when you want to apply that image to the universe itself, to the very nature of life, it has limitations. For one thing, the idea of a difference between matter and spirit. This idea doesn't work anymore. Long, long ago, physicists stopped asking the question, what is matter? They began that way. They wanted to know what is the fundamental substance of the world. And the more they asked that question, the more they realized they couldn't answer it. Because if you're going to say what matter is, you've got to describe it in terms of behavior. And that is to say in terms of form, in terms of pattern. You tell what it does. You describe the smallest shapes of it that you can see. Atoms, electrons, protons, mesons, all sorts of sub-nuclear particles. But you never, never arrive at the basic stuff. Because there isn't any. What happens is this. Stuff is a word for the world as it looks when our eyes are out of focus. Fuzzy. Stuff, the idea of stuff is that it's undifferentiated as some kind of a goo. Hmm? And when your eyes are not in sharp focus, everything looks fuzzy.
When you get your eyes into focus, you see a form, you see a pattern. And so all that we can talk about is patterns. So the picture of the world in the most sophisticated physics of today is not formed stuff, potted clay, but pattern. A self-moving, self-designing pattern, a dance. And we haven't yet, our common sense as individuals hasn't yet caught up with this. Well now, in the course of time, in the evolution of Western thought, the ceramic image of the world ran into trouble and changed into what I call the fully automatic model or image of the world. In other words, Western science was based on the idea that there are laws of nature. And it got that idea from Judaism and Christianity and Islam. That, in other words, the potter, the maker of the world, in the beginning of things, laid down the laws. And the, the law of God, which is also the law of nature, it's called the Logos. And uh, in Christianity, the Logos is the second person of the Trinity, incarnate as Jesus Christ, who thereby is the perfect exemplar of the divine law. So we have tended to think of all natural phenomena as responding to laws as if, in other words, the laws of the world were like the rails on which a streetcar or a tram or a train runs. And these things exist in a certain way, and all events respond to these laws. You know that limerick, there was a young man who said, damn, for it certainly seems that I am a creature that moves in determinate grooves. I'm not even a bus, I'm a tram. <laughs> so, here's this idea that there's a kind of a plan and everything responds and obeys that plan. Well, in the 18th century, Western intellectuals began to suspect this idea. And what they suspected is whether there is a lawmaker, whether there is an architect of the universe. And they found out, or they reasoned, that you don't have to suppose that there is. Why? Because the hypothesis of God does not help us to make any predictions. In other words, let's put it this way. If the business of science is to make predictions about what's going to happen, science is essentially prophecy. What's going to happen? By studying the behavior of the past and describing it carefully, we can make predictions about what's going to happen in the future. That's really the whole of science. And to do this and to make successful predictions, you do not need God as a hypothesis because it makes no difference to anything. If you say everything is controlled by God, everything is governed by God, that doesn't make any difference to your prediction of what's going to happen. And so what they did was simply drop that hypothesis 
But they kept the hypothesis of law. Because if you can predict, if you can study the past and describe how things have behaved, and you've got some regularities in the behavior of the universe, you call that law. Although it may not be law in the ordinary sense of the word, it's simply regularity. And so they, what they did was they got rid of the lawmaker and kept the law. And so they conceived the universe in terms of a mechanism. Something, in other words, that is functioning according to regular clock-like mechanical principles. Newton's whole image of the world is based on billiards. The atoms are billiard balls, and they bang each other around. And so your behavior, you, every, every individual therefore is defined as a very, very complex arrangement of billiard balls, being banged around by everything else. And so behind the fully automatic model of the universe is the notion that reality itself is, to use the favorite term of 19th century scientists, blind energy. In, say, the metaphysics of Ernst Haeckel and T.H. Huxley, the world is basically nothing but blind, unintelligent force. And likewise, in parallel to this, in the philosophy of Freud, the basic psychological energy is libido, which is blind lust. And it is only a fluke, it is only as a result of uh, pure chances that resulting from the exuberance of this energy, there are people with values, with reason, with languages, with cultures, and with love. Just a fluke. Like, you know, 1,000 monkeys typing 1,000 typewriters for a million years will eventually type the Encyclopedia Britannica. And, of course, the moment they stop typing the Encyclopedia Britannica, they will relapse into nonsense. And so in order that that shall not happen, because you and I are flukes in this cosmos, and we like our way of life, we like being human, if we want to keep it, say these people, we've got to fight nature, because it'll turn us back into nonsense the moment we let it. And so we've got to impose our will upon this world as if we were something completely alien to it from outside. And so we get a culture based on the idea of the war between man and nature. And we talk about the conquest of space, the conquest of Everest, and the great symbols of our culture are the rocket and the bulldozer. The rocket, you know, compensation for the sexually inadequate male. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to conquer space. You know, we're in space already, way out. If anybody cared to be sensitive and let what's outside space come to you, you can if your eyes are clear enough. Aided by telescopes, aided by uh, radio astronomy, aided by all the kind of sensitive instruments we can devise. We are as far out in space as we're ever going to get. But, uh, you know, sensitivity isn't the pitch. 
in, in especially in the WASP culture of the United States, we define manliness in terms of aggression. You see, because we are not, we're a little bit frightened as to whether we are really men. And so we put on this great show of being a tough guy. Uh, it's completely unnecessary. Uh, it, it, you know, if you have what it takes, you don't need to put on that show. You don't need to beat nature into submission. Why be hostile to nature? Because after all, you are a symptom of nature. You, as a human being, you grow out of this physical universe in just exactly the same way that an apple grows off an apple tree. So let's say the tree which grows apples is a tree which apples, using apple as a verb. And a world in which human beings arrive is a world that peoples. And so the existence of people is symptomatic of the kind of universe we live in. Just as spots on somebody's skin are symptomatic of chickenpox. But we have been brought up by reason of our two great myths, the ceramic and the fully automatic. Not to feel that we belong in the world. So our popular speech reflects it. We say, I came into this world. You didn't. You came out of it. We say, face facts. We talk about encounters with reality. As if it was a head-on meeting of completely alien agencies. And the average person has the sensation that he is a somewhat that exists inside a bag of skin. A center of consciousness which looks out at this thing and what the hell is it going to do to me? You see? Uh, I recognize you. You kind of look like me and uh, I've seen myself in a mirror. And uh, you look like you might be people. <laughs> so maybe you're intelligent. Maybe you can love too. And uh, maybe perhaps you're all right. Some of you are anyway. If you've got the right color of skin or you have the right religion or whatever it is, you're okay. But there are all those people over in Asia. Africa. And they may not really be people. When you want to destroy someone, you always define them as unpeople. Not really human. Monkeys may be, idiots may be, machines may be, but not people. But we have this hostility to the external world because of the superstition, the myth, the absolutely unfounded theory that you yourself exist only inside your skin. Now, I want to propose another idea altogether. Your, your, your weekend group might enjoy exploring some Alan Watts um, stuff because he, he, um, he, he died in 1973, um, but he would give these uh, public lectures and he recorded a lot of them. And, and so those recordings are still available. You can find them on YouTube. Um, I, I found some books on Amazon that are a compilation of some of his lectures and, and have just been devouring them where he's, he, he's basically saying uh, here is why we view the world that we do uh, in the West and especially concepts of God and, and religion. There are certain reasons and you can trace this back um, through the ages to see why it is that we believe this, but we're just one group of people on this planet as, as Westerners, there's other ways that people in the East have uh, addressed the same kind of problems that, that we do and they see it in a different way. And what would it look like to you if 
for example, instead of thinking of God as this monarch in the sky that you always have to please or else he's going to punish you, um, which he, he kind of talks about the origin of that in some of his lectures. Um, what, what if you looked at it from a, a Hindu perspective where they see um, the, the world as a drama and where God in eternity, which in, and I'm not that well-versed in, in Hinduism, but that, that they, they perceive of God as Brahman as like the whole entirety of everything, everything that exists, the compilation of that is Brahman. All of it's connected. Yeah. And, and each person is Atman, which is just a little piece of God. And that's what every living thing is, is this little piece of God that is in a drama and it's in a play. Um, and we're playing hide and seek with ourselves as God. And because eternity is so boring, (laughs) what are you going to do to entertain yourself and fill the time? You know, what, what do we do now? We, we watch TV. We are just talking about these TV shows or these movies or things that we do to entertain ourselves with virtual reality and things going in the future. I can, I can easily imagine a point where what we want to do is actually get into the program and be these characters in the TV ourselves. And, and, you know, this idea of a simulation that you're talking about is, is not that far off from this um, Hindu view that we, we are all, um, we, we've lost ourselves. We've forgotten who we are because it's part of the game and that's how we entertain ourselves. Mm. And, and if you, uh, like, I'm not saying that that's true and he doesn't say this is true. He's saying this is a different way of viewing the world. If you view the world that way, instead of the way that we were raised and conditioned in our Western culture, what does that do for your experience of life? What does that do for your stress levels? What does that, you know, so I, I found that really interesting and really compelling. Um, We're all stardust. Yeah. I mean, I stardust is boring. So let's, let's move the program along a little ways and let's create people who, you know, get caught up in their own lives. So, so, so in that sense, thinking of, of God as a humanoid or even, even some one single thing that is pulling the strings for, for everyone, you know, I just, I I think it's so beyond um, comprehension of being able to settle on anything and say, yes, this is God. And God has said, don't drink coffee. It's just, just, you know, it's, it makes me laugh right now. Um, And it becomes so small and what's the word? It's just, it's so small and, inconsiderate of all the other perspectives in the world. And and I don't know, it just, it becomes, as I pointed out earlier, it becomes irrational once you leave the vacuum and you begin putting on lenses of other tribes and other religions and other people and those who are different. And yeah. And, 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 and to me, like the end goal of all of this and what I, what I want to strive for, and I'm not completely there, but I feel like I'm heading in that direction is more is a greater capacity to accept those differences in people around me and not be so upset that they see things different from me and in some ways so much more harmful than me uh, than the way that I see things. And this is, you know, horrible, you know, so I, I feel like I'm able to uh, get less triggered and less angry at Mormons, you know, or, or, or anybody really, which, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think there are, are limits to how much you can do that too, because you don't want to be so permissive of horrible atrocities. But I- I'll tell you a year ago, I, I was so, uh, 
just twisted up in knots over this Trump Russia stuff. And I was listening to Rachel Maddow almost every night from probably like February to April of 2017. And it just, Oh, I hated it. And I, I, I detached from all of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I think always being worked up in, in this very visceral sense of all of the injustice in the world. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad that I'm not focusing on that as much anymore. I think there's, there's gotta be some kind of healthy balance and that's, yeah. I think there's something to be said as somebody moves out of egocentricity into ethnocentricity, out of ethnocentricity into world centricity, and then eventually into what's called cosmic centricity, something happens, which is what you're pointing at, which is that you, in cosmic centricity, people realize the, the uh, extension of their influence that they have, and they realize also the extension of their influence they don't have, like the things you can affect and the things you can't. And to waste, waste emotional capital in the things you can't isn't healthy. And so people who are more developed, just as you're pointing to the direction you're, you've moved, people who are more developed tend to only spend their energy on the things that they can affect. And they tend to find ways to make peace with the things they can't. Yeah. Where, where, where's that coming from? The, the so this would be Ken Wilber, Spiral Dynamics. Okay. Uh, this yeah, would be yeah, things yeah. that Thomas McConkie would kind of talk about, um, which Ken Wilber is kind of the, the, the James Fowler of today, although not necessarily religion-based, but he's the, the social science guy who's talking about development uh, in our current day okay. uh, in ways that I don't think anybody else has ever spoken about before. I, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with Spiral Dynamics. I, I did a episode with John DeLynn on that and listened to a liturgist podcast about it. And I found that really interesting and compelling, but I don't think I know it's Ken Wilber. Yeah. Ken Wilber is the originator of that. And, and now okay. there's, I mean, there's institutional brick and mortar buildings all across the country now where you can go and pay a couple grand and spend two weeks and people will help you uh, uh, assess your own stage of development and mm. give you the things that are hindering you and the things that would help you to move into later stages. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's the place we're moving is to become more aware of what consciousness is. Um, when I talk to people who are more developed, they, they, I mean, it's consistent. They point to a daily practice of meditation or they point to the use of psychedelics. And ah. so there's books out like Michael Pollan. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to bring that up with you actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about that. But Michael Pollan is such an interesting author where he's a famous cook chef yeah. uh, recipe guy. And all of a sudden he delves into psychedelics, starts using them himself, and then yeah. just talks at length about the research into each of these and what they're doing and the things that we labeled as bad 20 years ago when we put the egg in the frying pan 30 years ago and said, <laughs> yeah, you know, this is your brain on drugs. Yeah. The reality is some of those things now are being understood to be, have very little negative health effect. And the upside is huge in dealing with people's trauma, their PTSD, sexual abuse, uh, whatever it is, these things are becoming, um, I think in the next 20 years, you're going to see some schedule one drugs changed into legal drugs. If under the use of a facilitator or, or health professional. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got about uh, maybe 45 minutes left in okay. the audio book of, of Michael Pollan. So cool. I, I've been listening to it. The, the good last stuff. Weeks and, and he's got a good voice and he, he's oh, yeah. writing his own book. Great and, style. Yeah. I was yeah, listening great. this morning in the shower. Yeah. Um, so I, now I remember that, and, and you, you referenced this earlier in the conversation that you were grateful for Mormonism, you know, coming to your 17 year old self because you had gotten involved in, in drugs what uh, was part of your experience in youth, and that was a really negative experience for you. Were, were were those psychedelics that you used at the time? I don't remember exactly what drugs sure. they were. It was marijuana. It was LSD. It was alcohol. Yeah. And let me phrase it this way: when when I talk about drugs and talk about drugs being bad, um, there's two things. One is when you drug use drugs entirely recreationally. And if that recreational use is in some ways um, leaning you towards making bad decisions in your life, like, yeah, I think I'm going to just call in to work today and just stay home and smoke you know, pot all day, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, it seems very unhealthy to me. The other mm-hmm. side of it is there are certain drugs that people use that have adverse health effects. Um, I, I work at a pawn shop. I manage a pawn store mm-hmm. in Hurricane, Utah for Family Pawn. And I see people come in who right away, you can tell that they're using meth. You Mm. can tell they're using heroin because their skin, because of the way that they've changed from the last time they were in six months ago, you can just tell that there's a a negative adverse effect. When you look at some of these things, whether it be LSD, mushrooms, um, other psychedelics that are out there, there's a group of them that have essentially no negative health effects. And when used therapeutically, help people to move not only to later stages of development but to deal with unhealthy experiences in their life and i've got nothing negative to say about those and you know what uh so here's the thing bill and i talked about michael pollan's book and our thoughts on psychedelics for about another 30 to 45 minutes but as joseph smith taught us all too clearly Some things ought not be revealed to the world at this time. But I expect that we'll be doing a book review on Pollen's How to Change Your Mind book over the next few months, so maybe we'll revisit this topic again then. So in general, what did you think about this discussion? Are you convinced that Richard Dawkins and Joseph Smith were peeping from the same stones with their eternal progression, Darwinian evolution of God? theory, not theory, thought process, I don't know, whatever. Or how about the Alan Watts clips about the ceramic and fully automated model of the universe as this worldview that our culture has inherited? Or that throwaway line that he had about the distinction between material and spirit being outdated these days based on what science is showing us? Take your thoughts over to our website, infantsonthrones.com, and let us know what you think. And stick around for another extended Easter egg from my new podcast, Mythologi. Today's myth is from China, and it's called The Vinegar Tasters. Thanks again for listening to Infants on Thrones. And how about coming over to Patreon? You know, I, I would actually really appreciate that if you came and supported us on Patreon. I would really uh, appreciate that indeed. I really... I. I Hi, this is Aaron Tunnell from Flagstaff, Arizona, and I like to kill all the zombies inside of my TV while I listen to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com, 
And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Y aquí le toca la oración final. Once upon a podcast. Once upon a time. In a time before time. In the world there was once a beautiful princess. This is the Mythologi Podcast. Modern retellings of ancient myth. I am your Mythologi. Mythologi, Mythologi. Does whatever a Mythologi does. Today's story... The Vinegar Tasters. Once upon a time, in the far corners of ancient China, three men found their way to a very curious well. The men did not yet know this, but this well, you see, was filled with vinegar. All that these men knew was that according to ancient tradition, the contents of this well represented the very essence of life. All three men stepped forward, each anxious to taste for themselves the true essence of life. The first man was dressed in the traditional robes of Confucian. He was tall and thin. His face was worn and leathery and stern. He looked as if he had forgotten how to smile sometime in his youth. The second man wore the traditional robes of a Buddhist monk. He was short and stout. His face was round and proud and indifferent. He looked as if he had forsaken the frivolities of life sometime in his youth. The third man wore the common traditional robes of his village. He was, in fact, a Taoist. He was of average height, with an average build. His face was horribly pocked with warts and scars, but his expression was one of hidden bemusement, of perpetual lip-biting, as if he were about to burst out laughing at the seriousness of these other two men at any instant. Each man bowed his head slightly in respect in greetings of the other two men. The first man, the Confucian, he came to the well. He drew a cup from his robes and dipped that cup into the well. He took a long drink and immediately spat out the liquid from his mouth. Why, this liquid is sour, said the Confucian. I suppose I should have known. Even the lowest village idiot knows that life on this earth is out of harmony with the ways of heaven. This is why we need strict rules to bring our degenerate existence back into harmony with the divine. This well is filled with polluted wine. And turning to the other two men, he said, Drink at your own risk, but don't say I didn't warn you. And with that, the second man pulled a cup from his robes, dipped it into the well, and took a long drink. Immediately, he also spat the liquid from his mouth. Why, this liquid is bitter, he exclaimed. I suppose I should have known. As one who has reached enlightenment, I accepted long ago that life was suffering, and suffering 
leads to bitterness unless we detach ourselves from desire. This is not polluted wine, for wine is sweet. Because of that, I filled my cup and desired to taste something sweet. But there is nothing sweet about this liquid. I should have known better than to expect and desire otherwise. Drink at your own risk, my brother, but don't say I didn't warn you. And with that, the third man extended a single finger and dipped it into the well himself. He tasted it, and he turned to the other two men. Wait, could this be? And then he dipped his finger in again and tasted it once again. The expression on his face turned into a smile. Why, yes it is. How perfect. This liquid, you see, is vinegar. And, as vinegar, it tastes exactly like vinegar, exactly as it's supposed to taste. And with that, he pulled a sweet apple from his robe and took a bite. Mmm, this has never tasted better. Thank you, fine man, for showing me the value in accepting the whole experience of life. the man behind the Mythologi podcast. The first time I came across this uh, vinegar taster's myth was over 20 years ago in a gift shop of all places at a museum that was displaying terracotta soldiers from China. I bought a little figurine that I still keep with me on my desk today. Uh, I later heard the story from Benjamin Hoff in his excellent book, The Tao of Pooh. And I hope you enjoyed my retelling of it here today. Now, I've always loved this story as a way of helping me stay, or at least try to stay, somewhat grounded through all of the bitter and sour experiences that we have in our life. Because, yeah, you are going to taste the bitter. You're going to taste the sour. But you're also going to taste the sweet. And how true that is to our own human experience. But that's what myth does for us, isn't it? It explores human truths through story, fiction, metaphor, and that's what I will be doing with this podcast. Now, I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster, and I have a master's degree and a PhD, ABD, in folklore from Indiana University. I've heard a lot of myths throughout my life, a lot of legends, a lot of folk tales from all over the world. I love telling these stories and exploring what they mean. Now, if you like this podcast and you want to see it continue, please give Mythologi a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. And if you want to hear more discussion and analysis behind these stories, come support me on Patreon and get access to exclusive content not available to the general public. I'm Glenn Ostland, and I am your Mythologi. Until next time, keep your finger in the vinegar and an apple under your vest. I love it. Thank you for listening to Episode from Infants on Thrones.